If you're of a certain vintage, let's say born circa 1980 or before, this phrase may well have imprinted itself on your memory, especially if you're a sports fan, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. While ABC's Wide World of Sports television show led off its opening credits with this phrase every week, I find that the phrase isn't just evocative for sports fans. It applies to a lot of things. I think we can all agree that life, you know, the one you're living, the one I'm living, features both the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And a life lived as an investor, someone who by definition is playing the long game, by buying pieces of companies and holding them through thick and thin, there's some thrill of victory and agony of defeat there, certainly, too. And indeed, as I reflect on this week's podcast, our July 2022 mailbag, I can easily see and will let you know now in this week's opening credits that we have some thrill of victory and some agony of defeat here, too. So, it's July. It's 2022. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag. The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. You know, ABC's Wide World of Sports, which I grew up with, I was just checking Wikipedia 1961 to 1998. I certainly remember the voice of Jim McKay for those who remember the dearly departed sports broadcaster, but right through to Robin Roberts in its latter years. So 27, 28 years really of broadcasting. And every week, at least for the years I watched it, we saw the thrill of victory and then that guy wiping out, falling off the top of a building in his skis skis and poles flying everywhere, the agony of defeat. Well, as I mentioned at the top, we're going to see some of both throughout this week's mailbag. We have eight items featured. I'm also going to do some hot takes from Twitter. But before we get started, let's just take a look at the month that was. We started with 10 things to love about America, reflections of a recent immigrant. Some great reminders for me, I hope for you too, of what is beautiful about the United States of America, what has been true of its history, what I trust will be true of its future if we don't forget, if we don't take our eye off the ball. There are many ways to improve America, we can all agree. And in fact, I think this is the most improvable country in the world. I think we work together really well to try to fix things that are broken. Second week, it was Rule Breakers 2022 edition with Tim Byers. Tim will be rejoining me a little bit this week to talk through at least one of your mailbag items about the Rule Breakers service from The Motley Fool. Five Times I Changed My Mind, Volume 1. I love doing that podcast for you last week. And here we are, the fourth and final Wednesday of July 2022, the July mailbag. All right, let's get started with some hot takes from Twitter. Jason Moore at Jiminy Jillikers. Jason, you said, I think it was a critically timed podcast for the service. You're referring to my podcast with Tim Byers on Rule Breakers 2022. So much has changed, Jason writes, but the mindset has stayed consistent. Tim is always fun to listen to. His passion for the mindset really shines through. Thank you, Jason. Well, we'll be welcoming Tim back again very shortly. Ryan Treader loved this. My kids have been exposed to a few too many at RBI podcast episodes 
On the way to gymnastics, my five-year-old daughter told me when she's older, she's going to subscribe to Rule Breakers and listen to at David G. Fool so her stocks go up. Boy, I wish there was cause and effect there. Certainly has seemed at different points in the 30 years of The Motley Fool as if there were, but I think we've discovered that I and this podcast are not always positively correlated with a rising market. Mike Steele on the June at RBI podcast market cap game show reflecting at the end of last month. Mike writes, David says, let's get started. And then I even use the phrase without further ado around the six minute mark of that podcast. But then I didn't name the first stock in the game until six and a half minutes later. Too much pregame explanation and introduction. Jump into the game and play at other Mike Steele with an E on the end, writes, and Mike, I certainly agree with you. In fact, you and I have already exchanged a note or two on Twitter. We were both thinking of how Jeopardy does that so well, just gets the game started and then welcomes the contestants in. I think you might notice a change for our next Market Cap game show, of course, coming this September. It was Gratitude Month for many fellow fools on Twitter. I think Jason Moore may have started this, but a whole bunch of us were posting a daily gratitude one day after another. It was a pleasure to read them. It's such a wonderful practice to start each day by thinking about something that you're grateful for or just with the lens of gratitude perched on the end of your nose like a pince-nez, like increasingly the reading glasses that I find myself wearing doing these podcasts. That pince-nez where you're looking throughout your day for something to be grateful for really changes your mindset and I think puts you, as Shirzad Shamin would say, in your sage in a good place to experience productive days. Kelly Burgess at K. Scott Burgess wrote today, I am grateful for The Motley Fool and at RBI Podcast. Thank you, Kelly. The advice to one, diversify, and two, give each company a fair start has been invaluable during the last two years. And we're going to have a mailbag item that speaks to that very shortly as well. Kelly, thank you for your thoughts as always. And then just a couple more to close. Mahan Tavakoli at Mahan E. That's M-A-H-A-N-Y. I really enjoy following Mahan. He's a friend of mine here in Washington, D.C. Mahan does a wonderful podcast called Partnering Leadership. He has some crossover guests that we've had before on this show, but he does his twice a week. So the frequency of outstanding interviews. Mahan is so energetic with such a high degree of intellectual curiosity and passion around the subject of what wins, especially in business. Uh, he's an executive coach, among other things. But Partnering Leadership, a recommended listen if you're casting around for what else you can listen to that will help you from one week to the next. Well, Mahan, you wrote, looking forward to listening to this episode. You wrote this on July 20th. That means you're talking about Five Times I Changed My Mind, Volume 1. Mahan goes on, changing our minds is critical, most especially in fast-changing times. However, he adds, really hard to do. It requires an open mind and humility. Thanks for setting a great example. Well, thank you, Mahan. And Chowzam at Chowzam on Twitter. Hi, David. Looking forward to my weekly RBI listen. He's talking again about last week's podcast, and he comes up with a great Jeff Bezos quote. I hadn't seen this one before. Certainly a Bezos fan at Chowzam. This is outstanding. Thank you for it. Jeff has said anybody who doesn't change their mind a lot is dramatically underestimating the complexity of of the world that we live in. That's from at Jeff Bezos on Twitter. Great quote. All right, before we get started, I should point out something relevant to the calendar. This is the last week of July, which means next week 
is the first week of August, which means for this podcast every year, Authors in August. And once again, I'm excited to bring you some new authors that you may never have read before, and maybe one or two you have with my Authors in August author interviews, which is how Rule Breaker Investing rolls the final month of the summer each year. Now, next week, I'm actually going to do something I haven't done before. I hope this will be fun. It won't be too long. But kind of like I do my Games, Games, Games podcast each year, highlighting tabletop games that I think are worthy of your notice, I'm going to do something along those lines around books. A few books that have, well, changed my mind. A few books that have helped shape me. I'll intentionally try to pick a few books I haven't talked about in the past. And that's the way I want to set the stage for authors in August. So let's do a a books, books, books next week. And then the week after, I already know our first author is Jesse Schell, author of the wonderful book, The Art of game design. Now, some people hearing me right now don't really like games or care about game design. If that's you, feel free to put a line through the word game in his title because what Jesse's really writing about is design. The four basic elements, for example, mechanics, story, aesthetics, and technology, all aspects, of course, of game design, both video games, tabletop games, games of all kind, but really, Aesthetics, mechanics, etc., apply to so many different forms of design. So I'm really excited to have Jesse Shell. This is a book I read years ago. I think it is the best book of its kind. And if you are a gamer or even more so game designer, I think you're going to love that conversation the second week of August. Others, I'll preview as we get closer to them, but that's how August is going to kick off with books, books, books. And then Jesse Shell, The Art of Game Design. All right. Well, let's get started. Rule Breaker mailbag item number one this month. This one is addressed to, well, really, my friend Tim Byers. Tim, you just got some praise from Jason Moore, who said you're always fun to listen to and your passion for the mindset really shines through. Are you ready to be both fun to listen to and show some passion for mindset? Are you ready? Oh, boy. No pressure. Yes, I'm ready. <laughs> Excellent. This note is from Dirk Voss. Dirk writes, I've been a Rule Breakers member since 2006. Let me just stop that right there. Wow. Yeah. Thanks, Dirk. 2000, that's 16 years. We started the service in 2004. So, Tim, this is someone who's followed you and me and the team for a long time. Long Dirk, time. thanks for writing. I've been a RB member since 2006. I'm happy that you took the time to explain how you've changed the service. You asked for feedback. This is mine. I believe I heard you that you'll keep member facing the re-recommendations on the second Thursday each month and the new recommendations on the fourth Thursday of each month. I also heard that you are dropping the member facing risk ratings, best buys now, and penalty box stocks. Rankings will replace Best Buys now. You also said that the processes for the three dropped would continue to be used internally by the Rule Breakers team. So now members will see, Dirk summarizes, rankings, new recommendations, and re-recommendations. And the definition of rankings, he writes, remains unclear to me, particularly how it differs from Best Buys now. I would appreciate confirmation or clarification on the above observations. Thanks for asking, Dirk Voss. All right, Tim. So really appreciate this note. And I think, why don't we just go through it one item at a time and just have you confirm, deny, or provide any additional color. You ready? Ready. All right. So he said he believes he heard 
that you're keeping member-facing re-recommendations second Thursdays, new recommendations fourth Thursdays. Confirm, deny, color. Confirmed. Uh, the color on this will be that uh, we've always done this. We like to do the re-recommendations to start the month and then end the month with a new recommendation if we think it's warranted. And we always try to come up with a new recommendation. I'll say one of the slight enhancements that I'm thinking about introducing, David, which I like because we get this question a lot, is what else did you consider? Thinking about not only what else did you consider, but what did you pass on Hmm. and why? Can't say that we'll do that every month, but I think tune in for the next reveal Great, because I think we'll be able to do some of that. And I think there is value to the member in showing our work. So some people might be like, just give me the rec. But I think I I do think that there are people that like us to show our work. So we're going to show a little bit of our work, David. I think that is a great idea. I bet Dirk, uh, who's clearly an avid follower of the service, is probably nodding his head in agreement. Don't want to put a nod in his words in his mouth, a nod on his neck. That's really awkward. Dirk, (laughs) I'm not trying to say you agree, but I agree. I hope you agree. I think that sounds great, Tim. Okay, let's keep going. So he then said, I also heard that you were dropping the member-facing risk ratings, Best Buys Now, and penalty box stocks. Rankings will replace Best Buys Now. Confirm deny color so this one is kind of sort of so here's the color risk ratings are gone i'm i asked for feedback as to whether or not we should bring them back it sounds like most members want them back so i can't promise that they're coming back but i am listening and seeing what it would take to bring them back so that's a thing best buys now has been replaced by rankings and i know we're going to get to that The penalty box stays, Dirk. We're not getting rid of that. The penalty box, so if we decide to put a stock on hold, you'll see an article from the team that says blank stock enters the penalty box or blank stock stays in the penalty box or, you know, blank stock exits the penalty box. That persists. We still have that mechanism that we use internally. And then when a decision is made, just like when you were running things, David, then we would express that decision with an article that appears at the site. So that has not changed. Excellent. And he goes on to say the processes for the three, while dropped, would continue to be used internally by the Rule Breakers team. That's right. Confirm? That, that is right. And, and we do use the risk rating internally. Like we do do that. It's not expressed. So this, I think this in particular applies for the risk rating. So we do, we do that exercise to give a sense of things internally. It doesn't appear at the site. And so this is why we asked about it. Well, I appreciate that, Tim. And you know, you know this, but I want to make sure that Dirk and anybody listening knows this. Just because we did it back in my time, it does not ever mean that I'm the guy saying, "Hey, we need to keep going with that thing that I did or started." Right. I, I, I always vote for a service that's being responsive to member needs. And so, if not enough people were clicking on the risk ratings, and it was a lot of extra effort to publish, well, darn it, we don't need to feature those necessarily member facing every time. I will say, as you well know, Tim, that. The risk rating system I devised is basically usable 
by anybody. And certainly I've seen some of our avid members on Twitter saying they still use it or can use it and they do the work themselves. It's not a lot of work sometimes to answer these 25 questions, yes or no. We're not going to go back into the system and how it works, but it can be very instructive. It can be part, dear listener, of your research process if you really value that. Tim, I'm glad to know that you all are still doing it, but no requirement to keep doing anything that I was doing. Now let's get to rankings. This is obviously uh, where the new juice is. This is a new feature. In some ways, it kind of subsumes the others because if we start ranking stocks, well, that kind of implies Best Buys now or implies what might be in the penalty box, if you will. So Tim, confirm or deny that members will now see rankings, new recs and re-recs and some color pleas on rankings. Sure. So yes, all of those things you will see. And the color on rankings is that they take all the process that we use for Best Buys now and puts the list of votes into a one to 10 ranking. So the way Best Buys now always worked and continues to work is everybody on the team internally and then a list of contractors. I think it's eight or nine of them. And it's a bunch of people you know who you've seen on Motley Fool Live. People whose opinions they, we obviously greatly respect and we esteem. Trust. Yeah, we, we, we love these team, these, these members. It's like Brian Withers, Toby Bordelon, you know, like people who've been around for a really long time who we really trust and respect. Um, you know, former fool and contributor to the team, Aaron Bush, voting on Best Buys now. Like, and so those votes get in, they go to the same place they always did. And the beauty of the tool that we use internally to collect all those votes is that it kind of, it creates a stack rank. So like when we did the last release of the rankings, you saw that the trade desk was number one. So little inside baseball here. The trade desk got, in terms of the weighting of all of the votes, it got 11 points. So the people who voted, voted 11 points in favor of the trade desk. That put it very clearly number one, David. Mm. And so okay. in the list of rankings amongst, in the conviction, you know, conviction list one to 10 for the team, the trade desk was very clearly number one. And so that rankings list is a list of conviction. So from number one, highest conviction, number 10, lowest conviction of the 10 highest conviction stocks at that moment, that month, for Motley Fool Rule Breakers of the entire scorecard voting on every active stock in the Rule Breakers universe. You're just picking from five stocks, each voter, and saying, I want to apply one to one really one to three points for each vote and so it it becomes a not an automated process there's still a lot of thought that goes into it but then there's a list of 10 right so that best buys now process makes that list of 10 and then what i do playing your role david i come in and say do i like this one to 10 if I don't, how would I rearrange it? And so like this last time, Lululemon had the third most points. And I said, I can't get, I can't put it number three. There are still some risks here that I see. So I'm going to put it number six okay. for reasons that have to do with like, I think right now, 
Lululemon has some things to figure out in a high inflation environment. They've never really faced this. Great company. Love it. Definitely a high conviction stock. But for me, not number three. I'm moving it to number six. So it has some numerical pace to it. And it has some qualitative influence. In other words, I'm vetoing where I think I should. Great. Tim, well, the quantitative, the qualitative, the right brain, the left brain, um, integrating our thinking and then sharing it out with members, that's what we've always done. That's what we do to the best of our ability. So thank you. You know, Dirk did close that note as I read earlier. I would appreciate confirmation or clarification on the above observations. Tim Byers, I'm going to say you you gave him all of the above. And before I let you go, let me ask you something. We did do that podcast a couple of weeks ago. And I'm curious, is there anything that now that you're back on for this mailbag to close out the month, anything that you briefly would like to underline or restate or restress from Rule Breakers 2022 that you and I did together two weeks ago? Yeah, the main thing I want to restress is that, uh, you know, I love the Rule Breakers product and the process. And I, like you, David, this is why I, I loved working on Rule Breakers so much, both of us are process-driven people, process-driven investors. My process is different than yours. Yours is different than everybody else. Yours is unique. Mine is unique. But we're both very process-driven, and I fit very nicely into that. And so the processes that we take for uncovering and researching highly disruptive growth stocks remains. That's so important. I, I love that process very much. Um, and I said last time, I think I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember if I said it exactly this way. You'll remind me if I, if, you know, maybe I said it differently, but I said to expect the unexpected from us. Is that mostly what I said? That's a good summary. And, and I, I still believe that we are relentlessly searching for and curious about disruptive innovation that has not changed that's never going to change it's a bit of our bread and butter and sometimes the disruptive innovations and this is the best part about rule breakers one of my favorites is when you find a rule breaker in an industry where you don't expect it and these are the ones like well said Rick is really the best at this. Rick Minares, like Steiner Leisure is, you know, on cruise lines, just this idea of, you know, having a portable business and providing, I think it's spa treatments on cruise lines. There you and they are. built this amazing business out of it. It was like, and that can be a rule breaker. And you know what? That's the beautiful thing. Rule breaking happens everywhere. Well said. And we're going to lean into that forever. Yeah. I mean, you obviously just mentioned Lululemon. While it didn't grade out as number three, it's still high up there. And there's a great example of a rule breaker in an industry where you don't necessarily expect to see a lot of right. rules being broken. So, well, thank you, Tim, very much for coming back, sharing that out. Thank you, Dirk Voss, for your good question. Tim, I do see in closing here, you are broadcasting from our beautiful new Motley Fool offices in Colorado. People are going back to offices some of the time, at least. For example, yeah. you today? Yeah, yeah. Love I'm it. Love it. generally going Mondays 
through Wednesdays, and I hope we're going to open it up to most of the people who are out here so we can see more great fools in, in Fularado. But yeah, it's, it's starting. Honestly, David, it's long overdue. It's really nice. Well, I was back myself in our offices at Full HQ in Alexandria, Virginia for one day last week. There were about 75 of us. It's, I think it's because it was an ice cream social, so a lot of people showed up of that course. particular day. Um, we're, we're certainly phasing slowly going back into work, but boy, if I didn't have a wonderful day of connection, and my own takeaway yeah. was, I think people might be overrating the whole work from home thing. I realize everybody's in a different situation, and we've all kind of habituated to this the last couple of years, but habits die. Sometimes they change. And I think it's hard to find a real substitute for human connection. Anyway, Tim, thank you so much for joining us for this Rule Breaker Mailbag item in full on, my friend. Thank you very much, David. Full on. All right. Rule Breaker Mailbag item number two. This from Sharice Sandberg. Sharice, thank you for writing in. Dear David Gardner, before I forget, there's something that I, I really wish you could change. So Therese is actually going a couple different directions in this note. But what I want to speak to first is, is this before I forget. And I have a special guest star to join me in a sec here. Let me read what Sharice wrote. Before I forget, there's something that I really wish you could change if possible and not too expensive because it's really, Sharice writes, wasting a lot of my time. She reads a lot of Motley Fool articles. And I'm assuming this is probably just on the free side. She may not be a, a member of our services. She's reading a lot of full articles. She, she says, I'm constantly accidentally hitting the accessibility menu in the articles. Could you just, she says, put a little blue tool by the menu lines at the top instead of having it halfway up on the side where I tend to scroll down. My blood pressure starts to go up. I just have to stop and watch TV. Sharice writes, which I sometimes loathe because I can't handle the noises very well. The funnier things I might watch, and I always end up in these grisly Nordic murder mysteries because they're the quietest thing to do, except read Motley Fool articles, which I love and need. Sharice closes this part partly for a big boost to my mood because I really do like all of you a lot. So I'm going to pause that right there. And one of my favorite people I haven't yet had on my podcast, who's a Motley Fool employee, is my pal, Holly Fake. And Holly, welcome to Rule Breaker Investing. It's an honor to be here. Thank you, Holly. And you know, you have been at The Motley Fool, I mean, definitely pre-pandemic. How many years have you been at The Fool? I've been here for six years. Awesome. And you came to us because you have, among, I'm sure, many expertises, but at least one of those that we're paying you for is an understanding of how to design for the internet, how to present, how to arrange things, color up things or not, when we present stuff to members and readers of our articles. Am I right about that, Holly? Is that one of your superhero powers? <laughs> yes, I do user experience research here at The Motley Fool, and we'd never want to drive anyone to gnarly Nordic <laughs> murder mysteries. I, I think you're right. And so I thought, you know, while Sharice is also asking an investment question, which I'll answer separately, I thought, let me, first of all, have Holly on because, Holly, uh, thanks a lot for joining. And you know, it's so important as a web-focused company for us to design things in, in a way that people can appreciate and feel like they're using it and they know what's going on. And man, if our interfaces haven't improved over the course of your six years here at The Fool, and I know that work is probably never done. I'm not exactly recognizing what Sharice is referring to. Maybe many of our listeners right now are. What is your take on what Cherise shared? 
As you can imagine, we take accessibility extremely seriously. And because of that, we default this feature in the right side of the interface, but you can hide it. So I'd encourage you uh, to click on that usability feature. It looks like a stick figure. Mm. And what you'll notice is a menu will pop up. And as you scroll down, you have the ability to hide that widget. So you can say goodbye to any surprise noises. Oh my gosh, that is incredibly valuable. And I'm delighted. I, I can imagine right now, Sharice, I presume, Sharice, you're listening to us. We may have just saved you countless minutes and maybe a portion of your blood pressure as well. We, you might have saved a life right there. And beyond that, Holly, a lot of people probably reading Motley Fool articles, how many people actually click on that menu? That's such a good question and one that I would need to dig into. I'm not sure the, the number off of this. And I appreciate that. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but one of the things I know about our UX people is so much of our work is data-driven. And it's it's not necessarily what you or I think things should look like. It's how people use it. Am I right? I'm way out of my weight class here if we're talking UX. But Holly, for the UX designers out there, or maybe for the kids who are hearing a, a, a user experience architect and philosopher speaking maybe for the first time, and this might be a job that they one day want to get into. What are a couple of your rules of thumb or hot tips for us? Absolutely. I think of it as almost as visual editing. So many times we wouldn't put an article out into the world with somebody taking a look at it. Why would we do that any other way with a design? It's our opportunity to make sure that things that we're developing inside The Motley Fool or can be interpreted and used effectively for people outside. And so we make sure that it's aligned so they can become smarter, happier, and richer. Thank you. Well said. Was this like your college major? What did you study going through school? Um, I studied actually international relations, and I went on this really crazy path. I ended up being at EMT for a while, which drove me to learning technologies because it was a high reliability organization. Wow. Um, and they were constantly reskilling and retooling their workforce. But I just thought that the training that they did could be more engaging, more interactive. That took me into instructional design. I ended up getting a PhD in learning technologies, design research, which uh, we started developing really cool learning programs. But then one of the challenges of that was that people couldn't find the learning programs. So then I got into user experience and have been happy here ever since. Well, I'm delighted to know that. Before I let you go, Holly, uh, what was your first day of work like at The Fool six years ago? You know, I was working out and I was so excited to have access to a gym that I forgot my clothes. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized in the back of my car, I had two prom dresses. <laughs> They were actually bridesmaids' dresses, and um, one Got was it. very, very elegant, and the other was a backless purple dress. What'd you go with? <laughs> what would you go with? I, I really, I, I've never been in that situation, but if I were, I'm such, I'm such a slacker, I wouldn't have anything in my car, so I would show up in my birthday suit. No. What did you go with? <laughs> I went with the purple one because I had a giant jacket I could put over top of it. And from the front, it looked almost passable for not formal wear. <laughs> that is awesome. In conclusion, Holly, how long have we had accessibility menus? That's something that it's been important for us to provide in recent years. I certainly remember back in our AOL days, we didn't have anything like that. At some point, we started adding those kinds of features to the web. Give just a brief history. 
I think it was 2017 when we really started getting serious and making sure that everything was as accessible as needed um, to meet the needs of all foolish people. Wonderful. Well, Holly, speaking of capital F foolish people, I was just slacking you with this UX question. And then I thought, why not have you on the podcast and speak to it directly? I know everybody's enjoyed hearing from you. This cannot be your only appearance on Rule Breaker Investing. So keep making either amazing interface, which will cause people to write in, or horrible interface, which will cause people to write in, and we'll have you back. Thank you so much. This has been just such an honor. Thank you, Holly. Full on. Full on. All right. Well, the other portion of Sharice's note said this. I really like the way you're brave enough to admit that some of your picks haven't always lately been the best. And let us go with you to take a look to explain what happened. My problem, writes Sharice, is that I googled the phrase Motley Fool and Bandwidth. Now, Bandwidth is a public company. A stock advisor pick of mine from some years ago hasn't done so well the last few years, like a number of other of my stock picks, as has been well documented. Sharice goes on, I've Googled this combination several times or more for months, and I'm just not getting much about how The Motley Fool feels about this stock now. Did you say to sell it? I hope not, because I own too much of it at this point, and the buy price just keeps dropping and dropping, even when I think it surely can't go any lower. Is there something I don't know? Why is it doing so badly? I'm going to stop buying more of it at this point, unless I see an article that says it's actually okay. Thank you so much to all. Sincerely, Sharice. Okay. So let me say a couple of things before we move on to Rule Breaker Mailbag item number three. First of all, thank you for writing in, Sharice. Really appreciate your spirit. Second, bandwidth is a pick in Motley Fool Stock Advisor. Based on how I'm parsing your note, I'm wondering... I'm thinking you're maybe not a member of that service. It looks to me like you might be just reading our free articles out there on the web about lots of different stocks. We write hundreds of them every day, written by contractors across the country and the world, and some Motley Fool employees too. And uh, and bandwidth sounds like a is a stock that caught your fancy, and maybe you started buying it, reacting to I'm going to say our free articles. Now you should know there is a difference between Motley Fool free articles, which are written by people with lots of different viewpoints. Very specifically, we hire people who think for themselves. They're independent, self-sufficient thinkers. They may not agree with me or my brother Tom Gardner or whoever has picked a certain stock. They're presenting their own viewpoint. We've encouraged them to do that. We call that spirit motley, and it's in our name. So this can confuse some people who might think we're, I don't know, an investment bank or something where everybody would have the same idea about a stock. That one's a buy. This one's a strong sell, that kind of thinking. But The Motley Fool has never been like that. Going into our 30th year, we've always been Motley. And if you are, though, a member using our advice in Rule Breakers, as we talked about with Tim earlier, or Stock Advisor, you should know that the advisors of that service, for example, Tim for Rule Breakers, provide their viewpoint. And that's really what our paying members are paying for. So you might, based on reading our free articles, not necessarily come away with the ideas that we are backing with our scorecards and our reputation and certainly the dollars that we put into our services. So maybe I'm encouraging you to sign up for Motley Fool Stock Advisor or Motley Fool Rule Breakers if you've not already done that. The one other thing I wanted to say to you is just the importance of, I think, adding new money, not to things that are dropping, but to things that are rising. Now, this has been an important point that I've made for a few decades. I've certainly spoken to it on the Rule Breaker Investing podcast. In fact, six habits 
of the Rule Breaker Investor. Please Google that, Sharice, and you will see. You'll come to an episode where I talk very specifically about the habits that you should use around some of these higher volatility, more dynamic Rule Breaker-like stocks. I don't like to add to ones that are going down. I've never thought this one can't go any lower. Sometimes they do. I really think you should reserve new money for companies that are performing well. Now, sometimes their stocks are going down because, I mean, it's 2022, everything's down. But the companies themselves, looking at their performance, their revenues, their net income, some of the things they're projecting, new products that are coming along, or if they're in a good industry for emergent growth, these are the sorts of things we look for. And that's where we like to add money to things performing well. So because I'm not following the stock market as closely as I once did, I don't have a developed viewpoint myself right now on bandwidth, but you could certainly take a look at Motley Fool Stock Advisor for that. But most of all, I hope I'm double underlining as we move on to Rule Breaker Mailbag item number three, I'm double underlining the importance of not throwing, as we say, good money after bad. If something is not doing well, if the company isn't doing well, there's no guarantee it'll ever get back to even or that it can't go any lower. I'm certainly not saying that about bandwidth, but I am saying that about some companies. And therefore, I think it's much more foolish, capital F, to add to your winners, not your losers. Hope that was helpful. All right, truly shifting gears to a different place. Mailbag item number three, this one from Thane Walton. Thane, one gamer to another. Thank you for this note. Hi, David. We're an avid game-playing family, although not quite on par with your fanaticism. My middle son, Scott, soon with a master's in mechanical engineering from Arizona State University, has a brilliant mind that just figures things out. Hacks, if you will. I could share many stories, but let me tell you about a recent game of summer camp. Thane adds, great board game. I'm sure you've played, but if not, put it on your list. And to speak to that, Thane, I have not played Summer Camp. However, I do know the designer, Phil Walker Harding. I don't know him personally, but I know some of his other work, which is esteemed indeed. You go on to say Summer Camp is a deck building game. Insert the correct te terminology here, but essentially each player builds his own factory or machine to use his personal collection of cards to navigate moves on his turn well, we don't need to further define deck building. That gets into really geeky places. But I think a lot of my listeners, especially gamers, will know of deck builder games like Dominion, which Thane happens to be our family's most played game over the decades. The kids kind of grew up on a deck builder. Anyway, you go on to say this was only our second or third time playing. Each of us was building up a good machine for an exciting finish. It's kind of an engine building game, he points out. We each had our cards mapped out, and it was going to be a close finish, but somehow... My son Scott figured out that with the right set of cards, he could make his turn last forever and win the game. Now, on the one hand, Thane writes, I had to admire his skill in figuring out such a riddle. But on the other hand, it really took the wind out of our sails and put a damper on a good game. My wife declared that he had ruined the game for her and made it no fun. I know game designers go through all sorts of play, tweaks, replays, etc. as they fine-tune the game, but somehow... They missed this loophole. This caused me to wonder, in conclusion, what David Gardner would do in such a situation. Should we email the game designer to let them know of this flaw? Thanks, Thane Walton. Well, my short answer to that one, Thane, is go to Board Game Geek, one of my five favorite websites on Earth. And on Board Game Geek, there's a page for every single game ever invented. So you could quickly navigate to the game Summer Camp, which is what you're describing, and then you would go to the forums, and you should post your experience, including 
the game break, whatever your son Scott was doing that caused him to have sounds like an infinite recursive turn where he just sort of won the game without anybody being able to stop him. Again, I don't know the game, but we're not here to talk about the game. We're here to talk about what you do as a gamer when you find yourself in this situation. And in my experience, first of all, my guess is you may have missed a rule. These kinds of games and this game designer, yes, they're pretty rigorous in terms of their testing. So I'm wondering whether something was missed here. But by sharing your experience in the forums there, just like people share their experiences on the Motley Fool forums as we talk about stocks and investing, you're going to find lots of other like-minded people on BoardGameGeek, which is BoardGameGeek.com. You're also going to find often the designers themselves are there answering the questions. So I bet you'll find a solution that way. That's where I go. And while this is just one mailbag item about one particular game that many of us will never have heard of, this is more broadly the right way to solve any game question that any of us has around the rules or how to play any of the thousands of games that are now available in our society today. Boy, there was a time when only a few games came out every year. I'm thinking of decades ago, but these days, 10,000 new titles-ish come out with each passing year, whether it's on Kickstarter or via traditional publishing companies. We are living in a golden age of efflorescence of game publishing and game design. It's hard to keep up with it all, but I use Board Game Geek. Hope that's helpful. All right, on to Rule Breaker mailbag item number four. And really for numbers four and five, one of my favorite all-time fools had to come join me. In fact, Robert Brokamp, you were called out, not in this one, but in Rule Breaker mailbag item number five. So of course I was going to have you for that. But this one too, bro, how you doing? I'm just doing great, David. It's a pleasure to be back on the show. Thank you very much. Always a delight. And Robert, would you just briefly share your Motley Fool history. We just had Holly Fake on talking about her six years at The Fool. Robert Brokamp, how many years have you been at The Fool? Uh, it'll be 23 years in about three weeks. So I started out as an editor and gradually moved into handling more of the financial planning content because before I joined The Fool, I was a financial advisor. And uh, at the time, that made you completely overqualified to be hired by our company <laughs> in the 1990s. Wait, we actually we have a real financial advisor who's coming to work for us, Tom. Look at this. So, and somehow you stuck with us, and thank you. Let's go to Nikhil Jane's note. Here we go, Robert. Hi, David. Love the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. I am a loyal listener. A few episodes to catch up as I missed some while I was traveling in Spain this summer. Nikhil adds, it was wonderful to travel abroad again after two-plus years of COVID-19 lockdown anyway. He writes, I know you can't give personalized financial advice to listeners and members, but I have a general question that might benefit all fools. Member of Epic Bundle here, he says, mentioning his membership. It's quite epic, a collection of services I've subscribed to since 2018. Well, thank you for that, Nikhil. Many services... Uh, your brother Tom Gardner, your guests like Morgan Housel, and investment gurus in general. And Robert, I'm going to say Robert Brokamp is one of those. I assume you're going to agree with this. But in general, suggest having a cash cushion or emergency fund of savings that would last three to six months worth of your living expenses. Nikhil writes, I've been trying to save up this amount. However, have found myself conflicted. Since I began my saving efforts, the market, have we all noticed this, went south. Now I find it harder to save because I feel the urge to invest 
in the current market conditions where stocks are down. Instead of saving, I find I keep investing, therefore not reaching my savings goals. I do not have an imminent need per se, Nikhil adds, for an emergency fund, but recognize it is important to save. In closing, I'm curious, would you guide fools to stick to the plan and save up and thereby forego investing in stocks that have been cut in half, or would you advise a fool to invest regardless and worry about saving once the market is on its way up? Curious to get your thoughts, insight, and perspectives. Thank you in advance for your consideration. Thanks for all the great content and efforts of the entire Rule Breaker Investing team. Sincerely, Nikhil from Davis, California. Well, thank you for that note, Nikhil. Bro, I'm looking at the world at large and I'm seeing the stock market down. I feel it too. And if I have new money to invest, I'm thinking, isn't this the time we're being greedy and buying when others are fearful? What are your thoughts in terms of what to prioritize with new money? Well, I, I think it's important to understand this whole concept of the emergency front. And it's really to protect against two things. Number one, income disruption. Like, What would happen if something happened to your job, you got laid off, your company went out of business, you got disabled. And even if you had insurance, you usually have to pay for like 90 days before the, the policy kicks in. Who's going to pay those bills if there's any sort of income disruption? And often that happens when the economy is in a downturn. So do you want to then turn to your stock portfolio to pay those bills, or should you have cash on the side? That's number one reason. The other reason is if you have a big unexpected expense, some major thing happens to your car or your house, although anecdotally, I'll tell you what often happens is a series of things, like you had a higher mm. than expected medical bill, then a car repair, your AC goes out, and then you did your taxes and you realized it didn't have enough withhold. Wait, are you saying bad things come in threes? Threes or fours, but often threes. Yes, this Ouch. is true. Ouch, keep going. <laughs> so again, what are you going to do if that happens? Now, we talk about having it in cash, but often what we really mean is an account that's liquid and accessible because many Americans, if not most of Americans, are doing most of their investing in IRAs or 401ks. And if you need the money as an emergency, you either can't, depending on your 401k, or you can, but you pay taxes and a 10% penalty if you're not 59 and a half. Mm. So it is important to have this other money on the side that will not go down and is easily accessible. Now, how much should you have, though? The question is really to ask yourself, what happens if this happens to me? What happens if I lose my job and I'm the primary breadwinner and I have a mortgage and three kids and a car payment? Then you probably should have some money safely set aside. On the other hand, if you're single, you're younger, you don't have the mortgage, you don't have the kids, you could move in with mom and dad if it was okay, maybe you're fine not having much of an emergency fund. Now, you can if you have a significant taxable brokerage account and say, you know what, I'm just going to turn to that if I have an emergency. If, even if my stocks are down, my brokerage account is big enough so that even if it's down 20 to 30%, and I needed an emergency, I'm okay doing that. Might be able to do some tax loss harvesting at that point. And maybe that's fine for you. The worst scenario is you don't have any of this liquid money. Something happens because then people turn to credit cards where the average rate is 17%. Many of them, it's over 20%. And then if you're in a situation of putting five, ten, twenty thousand $20,000 in a credit card, credit card because maybe you lost your job, you don't get a new job soon. And then that's really putting you behind the eight ball in terms of your finances. That's great. So I, I, I admit to rather mechanically saying things like emergency fund over the years. And 
three months or six months. I admit to doing that. But what you're helping us do is to look at the larger context that surrounds that. Not everybody's three months or six months is the same as somebody else's, both in terms of how much we need, how much we're spending, but also maybe we have a partner or spouse making twice what we make. So, you know, maybe it's not such a big deal. It is contextual. So much, of course, of financial planning is contextual. Robert, that's why people hire financial planners so that they can kind of have a plan that's their plan. And I assume while I'm not one and have never played one on TV, the best financial planners aren't just giving a cookie cutter solution, selling their firm stuff. Certainly they're out there, but the best ones really do know your context and create a plan around that. Am I right? You're absolutely right. And we talk about risk tolerance a lot when it comes to investing, right? Like how many, how much of the ups and downs of my portfolio can I stand or of an individual stock? But you could also look at risk tolerance in your overall financial picture, right? If you are someone who's willing to say, you know what, I'm going to invest as much as I can. And then if an emergency happens, I have these other steps I can take that maybe the typical financial planner wouldn't approve of, but I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to turn to my portfolio, my brokerage account, and sell stocks while they're down if I have to. I might even be willing to borrow from my 401k. I might be willing to borrow from my parents. Whatever it is, you just have to have a plan B and a plan C and determine what's right for you. All right. Well, Nikhil, Jane, I hope that was helpful for you. We're delighted that you took the time to reach out and ask that question because you're right, Nikhil, that is asked by many and the answer is important. And talk about important answers. Robert, let's move on to Rule Breaker mailbag item number five. Now, I kicked off the podcast this week with the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. This is an agony of defeat story. It comes from our friend Fergus Cullen, longtime full member. It's not his own defeat, but I think and you've already read this. In fact, it was kind of written to you, Robert, but I, I really want to share this with all of our listeners because it makes such an important point. There's a little bit of a carpe diem thing happening with Rule Breaker mailbag item number five from Fergus Cullen. David, I recently attended a memorial service. Couldn't help myself. As the first speaker took the podium, I thought about Priya Parker's admonition from The Art of Gathering, which you have highlighted, that one should never start a funeral with logistics. I listened for it and am glad to report that in this case, that advice was followed. Okay, brief pause. Awesome. Delighted to know that. Priya Parker, of course, with her book, The Art of Gathering, on authors in August from a few years back. What a wonderful book. Highly recommended to everybody. And yes, the title of one of the chapters, Never Start a Funeral with Logistics. She's pointing out the importance of seizing the moment and making sure that first moment at the start of an important event, for example, a funeral, don't lead off by saying, now, um, if your license plate is LMB643, Missouri plate, um, just want to start. By the way, thank you all for being here. Phil would have loved to be here, but he, we already miss Phil. Anyway, your lights are on. Uh, in, in the second story of the parking garage. So that is definitely not the way Priya would say to start any funeral. I'm delighted, Fergus, that it didn't start that way. But here comes some agony of defeat. So, But the reason I write, Fergus writes, is because the deceased was just 48 years old and died without a will or a guide to his accounts. He was twice divorced and left behind three children across the two marriages, two minors, and one who had just turned 18 a few months earlier. Here's the kicker. That makes the 18-year-old 
the next of kin. He becomes the legal administrator of the estate. He is charged with acting as a fiduciary for his two younger half-siblings, one of whom is a first grader. He had to sign the form authorizing the cremation of his father's body. It's a lot to dump on an 18-year-old who just graduated from high school last month and whose own bank account is still a custodial one. And it is a scenario that simply hadn't crossed any of our minds because, hey, who expects a 48-year-old to drop dead? Fergus writes, I'd been tardy myself about writing a will and putting together a packet with all the information survivors need in the event I die suddenly. Financial accounts, logins, passwords. Fergus writes, don't forget your Apple ID. What prompted me to do it finally was a Motley Fool podcast in which Robert Brokamp reminded listeners that it is so easy to procrastinate about writing a will, so easy to rationalize about how there's plenty of time for that later, until, in a snap of the fingers, it's too late. Fergus closes, now in addition to grieving and delivering a eulogy, an 18-year-old is left with a mess to clean up, no breadcrumb trail to follow. His first act was to pay the mortgage on his late father's duplex a week late. By the time we figured out who had it, how much it was, where there was any money to pay it, oh yeah, the 18-year-old has tenants now. Fortunately, one of the ex-wives still had the bank account login information, which her late ex had not changed. The checking account is down to about $500, so stuff has to get figured out pretty quick. My message is, it is our responsibility as adults not to let this happen to those we leave behind. Memento mori, Fergus writes, remember that you must die. If you don't have a will and a folder with everything someone will need to know, get on it. And thank you, he concludes, Robert Brokamp. Signed, Fergus Cullen. Well, bro, a lot of us can thank you for years, not just through the Motley Fool Answers podcast, the things that you do for members at member events, the articles you've written, the services you've overseen. You have invaded against this, of course, and you're such a nice guy that you're never going to be the old cranky guy who says, do this. But I assume it hurts you as much or more than anybody listening. Nobody hurts like that 18-year-old to hear that story. Robert, your thoughts? Well, unfortunately, it's not that uncommon. Right? Mm. The majority of Americans actually do not have a will. And the will is just the beginning, right? The will is step one. Many people should also have trusts so that assets will bypass probate. Probate's the legal process by which property gets transferred from a deceased person to the heirs. It sometimes can take years for that to happen. My father-in-law died of COVID in April of 2020, and I'm mm. the executor, and I still have not been able to settle the will, frankly, because he didn't set things up very well. Um, so that money is locked up until I can settle it. Um, and then, but he, Fergus also points out something very important, the breadcrumbs to all the other stuff. So you can do a complete estate plan, but it's going to be of no use unless someone knows where it is. So what I have done is I have my sister as executor, sister-in-law as backup executor. They have received an email. They know where this is. And it has a picture of where I have hidden this document. So they know where to find it. Now, if the house burns down, we're in trouble. But <laughs> so, so, so not just written instructions, but you've literally taken a picture of it. 
Yes, they know exactly where <laughs> to find this. Um, and it's, it's all the other stuff. Where are all the accounts? Where are all the professionals that you should consult if you need help? Um, what are the passcodes? Where are their safe deposit boxes? All that information, where are the insurance policies? All of that stuff should be in one document in an easy file path, especially for this poor 18-year-old. And I do want to point out that, no, I'm not a lawyer, and this does depend on states. Um, but first of all, generally speaking, you can't be made to be someone's executor. So this 18-year-old could say, I don't want to do it, and then the state finds somebody else. Now, I bet this 18-year-old feels obligated to do it, and that's fine. The 18-year-old could also hire professionals to help him. Lawyers, accountants, it won't be cheap, but it's paid for by the estate. Now, as this estate seems very cash illiquid. There are only $500 left in the account, and that happens too, because all the assets get locked up in the estate and there's no money to spend. So there's all these things you have to think through, which is why while we at The Motley Fool generally believe you can be a do-it-yourself investor, you should not be a do-it-yourself estate planner. You really do need to find a qualified attorney who's experienced in estate planning in your state to help with all this stuff. You know, Robert, I've often heard that, you know, you, you gave the statistic, the vast majority of Americans die without a will. Often, I think it's been pointed out that many don't have that much. Not everybody has savings or things that are worthy of trusts. And that, of course, is sad to think on its own, and in, in part why I love the mission of the Motley Fool Foundation, which is financial freedom for all. That's a long-term quest. It won't happen in my lifetime, but that's what we're striving toward. But even when somebody doesn't have that much, as they die, you just point out they have lots of other things, password logins, their information, maybe their last wishes, all of these things, regardless of even financial assets, these are all part of, I think, living a complete life. And um, so... My hope is that through Fergus's note, a beautiful note, a sad agony of defeat reflection, but I hope that a lot of people are hearing you right now and hearing us and thinking, you know, I really do need to do that. And I want to raise my hand first and say, I have done a lot of the financial things that you're referring to, but I still at the age of 56, I have not really provided good instructions yet. I think around my digital life for my wife, for my family, if somebody's trying to look up or find something. I haven't put my passwords out there to anybody. These are things that I really do need to do. And so, Fergus, thank you for the reminder for many of us. And, well, of course, I love, Robert, that he closed by thanking you. I thank you as well. Always great to have you back on this podcast. Any summer thought or wisdom you want to share or wish for the world at large as you part here after two wonderful mailbag items? I have to say, it's not a summer thought. It's a follow-on to what we just talked about. And that is what a lot of people end up fighting about when someone passes away is not the 401k or the bank account. It's stuff, mm. family heirlooms, and then directions about what will happen with the body. I'm not sure I'm getting these stories completely right. But I seem to recall that when the radio broadcaster Casey Kasem passed away, there was a big disagreement over what should be done with his body. So it stayed in a basically a morgue for a long time. And then when Robin Williams passed away, uh, his children and his, I think, third wife disagreed over a lot of just items, including things like watches and underwear. So you do want to have a system in your estate plan for how that gets resolved. What my mom has done, and my mom is now 83, has said, okay, what do you want? Is there hmm. something particular of mine that you want that I can put in the will? 
And then after that, we basically have a round robin system by which we get take turns picking things. Now, I hope we don't need this for another 20 years. But my mom has thought that through because I don't care about her bank account, but I do care about the bells that used to belong to my grandfather that my mom now owns. Beautiful. Well, it's a story that, I mean, every one of us is connected to so many other lives. So it's a story that'll just keep recurring. And so the earlier that we can get better at telling that story and being the hero of that story for our family and friends, uh, the better off the world. Great to be with you, bro. Thanks. My pleasure, David. All right. On to Rule Breaker Mailbag item number six. Well, I gave you the agony of defeat. It's time for some thrill of victory, Eric DeVore. Thank you for this note. This is actually written to Bill Mann, John Rotanti, and Tim Byers, and me. But since he sent it to the Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag, I will be happy to share it. But Eric, you wrote, I just wanted to write you four personally and share with you some incredibly good news. I've been signed. It's official as of this morning. It's been announced by my agent and her firm, Defiant Talent Management. And Eric provides URL. I'll mention that in a sec. Now, let me pause for a sec. Eric is a longtime fool, listener of this podcast and Motley Fool Live, etc., which is why he knows many different fool personalities and is calling out some of them in this note. Eric, you are somebody who's incredibly talented at music. You've written lots of scores and bits for movies, video games, trailers, etc. You've also shared a lot of your story on and off with this mailbag over the years, how hard it was at different points during the pandemic for you with all kinds of things shutting down, mental health a real concern, not just for you or for me, but for so many. And in fact, I think that's been a real important focus for us at The Motley Fool. We have hundreds of employees. That means hundreds of different stories, different contexts and situations for people working from home in many cases. And boy, if mental health hasn't come to the fore for us as a company, we've often reflected, you know, it's not just talking about stocks or a market mindset. I try to do this on Rule Breaker Investing. We're talking about life as well, how you navigate it as successfully as possible. How do you find happiness operating out of your sage, et cetera. Eric, you have been an avid listener and contributor back. So I'm so happy for you that you got signed by that talent firm for your work. I'm going to continue Eric's note. I'm writing to give each of you my sincerest thanks for getting me through one of the most difficult periods of my life and professional career. I feel as if the weight of the world has been lifted off my shoulders. There are clear skies ahead looking west, he writes, of course. Thank you for that, Eric. And the world is as bright as it's ever been for my professional journey. And all this after a complete mental, physical, and professional bottom courtesy of the pandemic. Frankly, it's shocking I was able to invest as much as I did during that time. It still boggles my mind, Eric continues, that The Motley Fool, as a stock-picking service, was able to help me with my mental health, confidence, and yes, musicality as a composer. Oddly enough, I wouldn't be the artist I am without the interactions and support I've received from some fools. Even if the brief Twitter interactions were small, sometimes trivial, and the Zoom calls or the Motley Fool live appearances or the mindset sessions were few, it was wonderful to get to know all of you virtually. And in this case, I think he's writing not just to us four, but to you, dear listener, maybe you, Twitter user, you who might have brightened Eric's life with something that you posted or listening in on mailbags to a little bit of his story. He goes on, one thing's for sure, I've found my positive third space in Fool Live and the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. You all should be incredibly proud 
of the community you've created with us members. I look forward to a long and prosperous relationship with The Fool. I hear Star Trek vibes there and can't thank you enough for just being yourselves. Hopefully one of these days I'll be able to meet you all at an event, give you a proper handshake, some thanks in person. Until then, just keep swimming, Eric writes, and fool on, gentlemen. If anyone's ever in L.A., kindly let me know. My best, Eric DeVore. Now, I'm going to give Eric's website in case anybody's curious to see what his work looks like. It's Eric spelled E-R-I-C-K, and DeVore is D-E-V-O-R-E.com. Happy to give you a plug. Hope it leads to even more business for you. In future, you know, looking over your work, Eric, I feel like good things should have come to you, and I'm glad that they have come to you. Sharing a little bit about your bio, you're a composer, music producer, multi-instrumentalist based in L.A. You started your career at Hans Zimmer, one of my favorite soundtrack composers, at Hans Zimmer's Remote Control Productions. While there, Eric arranged, programmed, and composed projects including Transformers 3, Battleship, Gangster Squad, Pain and Gain, Desperate Housewives, and two Gears of War games. Pretty sure I played them both for Epic Games. Eric also programmed and arranged DreamWorks' feature film Need for Speed and NBC Universal's Crossbones. He wrote additional music for the dystopian drama Colony, which I enjoyed at least a half season of, and Epic Games' instant classic Fortnite. Just to brag on this fellow fool a little bit more, Eric's music has been featured in marketing campaigns for projects such as Thor, Love, and Thunder, Ambulance, Star Trek Prodigy, The Lion King, Invisible Man, Lady the Tramp, Dumbo, Ad Astra, Avengers, Infinity War, Captain Marvel, Aquaman, and the list goes on. Anyway, Eric DeVore, yes, in life, there are more than one instance agony of defeat. We've certainly felt it as stock market investors over the last year or so, but that's what makes the thrill of victory even sweeter. Very happy to share your note, in part because of what you're sharing here, which is that we're building a community. That's what The Motley Fool has always been. It's not just the stock pick or where we think the market's headed. It's about your life. It's about being successful and investing in business and life. That's where I've tried to focus this podcast and so much of my own effort. And it's just a delight to be in a community with so many wonderful fools like you. Congratulations, Eric DeVore. All right, let's finish it out with Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag Item number seven. This from Charles Fick. Thank you for this lovely note. Charles, dear David, I began learning more about investing in October 2020. I found The Motley Fool in the summer of 2021. And when I discovered Rule Breaker Investing, it felt like coming home. You could say I've been a capital F fool for a long time, as I was the homecoming court jester my senior year of high school. I have journeyed the eight years of your podcast in one, and now have this odd experience of having to wait for the next episode to come out. I greatly appreciate your blend of humor, candor, truth-telling, optimism, and wisdom. I have learned so much. Thank you. Well, wow. Thank you, Charles. I'm totally honored by that. He continues, I started putting real money in the market around November 2020. So timing-wise, I was a small F fool. I've lost about 50% of what I've put in. But your constant encouragement to play the long game and that bear markets like this are normal has kept me hopeful. The episode on The Day the Market Crashed with Chris Hill may be my all-time favorite just because the timing was so brilliant. 
My motivation for investing is a bit unique, I think. I am a father of three sons, two with autism spectrum disorder, and the services and opportunities I want to provide for them are the primary motivation for my investing. Someday, I dream of financial freedom for them so we can get whatever they need to flourish. I know it will take a while, and it's hard to wait, but I just wanted to send this note to let you know how much your podcast and The Motley Fool have helped me this last year. And since you love poems, I thought I'd try a haiku to close. And there are different ways of defining a haiku, as no doubt Charles knows. Many of my listeners will. But the 575 is kind of the classic number of syllables. And I'll just point out in advance of sharing this that Charles has it nailed with 575. So this is very kind and very brief. Let me share it and then some final thoughts. Charles, you wrote, David taught me this. Invest in excellence. Wait. The future is bright. He signs it full on, a smarter, happier, and in three to five years, hopefully richer, Charles. Well, in many ways, that's a perfect capper for this week's podcast because there's some agony of defeat in here and some thrill of victory. The agony of defeat is very clear to all of us, especially for Charles and so many who started investing right near the top of the market. I mean, November 2020, things have not been pretty over the last year and a half. I so feel for you, Charles, and so many other people who, whether it was The Motley Fool they found or Bloomberg or CNBC or some broker, whoever it was who got you started investing, unfortunately, we can now look back and see that wasn't great timing. But then again, we've never tried to time. One of the old saws that we trot out on this podcast and across Motley Fool properties on a regular basis, it's time in the market, not timing the market. If I had to time the market, I wouldn't be very good. I started investing in 1984, just a couple of years, three years actually, before Black Monday, the October 1987 stock market crash. So I can certainly relate. And in our 30 years of running The Motley Fool, we've seen horrible markets in 2001, 2008, 9, and I would say here 2021, 2022 as well. That is the agony of defeat, and it's very clear. But Charles, your note of hope, your realization that it's not about the last year, it's not about any given year, it's about a commitment over your life to the markets as an investor. And specifically for you, it's about the reason that you're investing. You know, when I did my six principles of a rule breaker portfolio, one of them encourages each of us to ask that question Why am I investing? I've even urged you to name your portfolio, if you like, dear listener, because that will keep you centered on the purpose of why you're doing what you're doing. And Charles, in particular, you have a very specific and beautiful purpose for your family. And I trust one day that financial freedom will be there for you, and I hope for your ilk. You certainly deserve it because of the hard work you're putting in. And even though I too can say I've been about cut in half, and this is money that you and I have earned over the years, and it doesn't feel good at all to watch it go down in value, I think you know that math is on our side. Kindness and math are two of the most powerful forces on earth, and I think we have both of them as tailwinds for our actions. So Charles Fick, thank you for a beautiful haiku. 
Thank you for your note, which does provide some agony of defeat, certainly, which I can empathize with as well, having felt it myself. But a reminder that that will make the thrill of victory all the sweeter. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rulebreaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.